Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 153, my guest is Philip Bargus. He's the author of In Defense of Deflation. What are the typical things that people are getting wrong about deflation and why are they getting it wrong? We explore some of these questions in this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges, offering a high-quality platform with high trading volume and low fees, no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken offer 24-7 support. It's really easy and fast to sign up with them. And check out Kraken Pro, a mobile app for Google and for Apple iPhone, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design. And if you're looking for more ways to buy and sell Bitcoins, you can go to the Kraken OTC desk for large block trades, 100,000 or more. There's Kraken margin up to five times and there's Kraken futures up to 50 times leverage. Go and sign up at kraken.com. This episode also presented to you by Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin financial services company offering services that are built on the foundation of multi-sig. So you can set up a two of three vault with Ledger and Trezor. Cold card is coming soon. You can set up that vault and Unchained can be the third key in that scenario and they can co-sign for you and they can help you in a backup scenario as well. Go to the website and look up the vault section. Unchained also offer collateralized loans so you can put up bitcoins and get usd liquidity without selling your bitcoins all that bitcoin is stored on chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses and it is never rehypothecated i'm really impressed with unchained they offer excellent services they're releasing valuable content and open source tools such as caravan so i think you'll enjoy partnering with them for your bitcoin financial services go and learn more at unchained-capital.com Check out CypherSafe at cyphersafe.io. They're producing the Cypher Wheel product. So if you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet and you've got that 24 or 12-word BIP39 seed, is it backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rust-proof, pet-proof, and tamper-evident? The Cypher Wheel comes in a wheel shape. It's a steel backup product. It masks the words of your seed. It's also got a padlock tamper evidence seal so you know if it's been opened so make sure you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs orders are going out now so go and order yours at cyphersafe.io on to the interview philip welcome to the show thank you stefan for having me so philip i am a fan of your work i read uh, i first came across your work in the the tragedy of the euro uh and i've seen some of your work as well around uh in defense of deflation and uh, some of the articles that you've written as well. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, just for my listeners who might not know you? Yeah, I'm uh, German, but I work uh, in Spain. I am a professor of economics at Universidad Rey Juan Carlos, which is located in Madrid. I did my PhD already here in Madrid uh, under the um, supervision of Jesus Huerta de Soto. And yeah, I've been a professor at the university for more than 10 years. And as you said, my probably my most known work has been the tragedy of the euro. And I have I've written a lot on the euro. Um, my main topics are monetary theory and business cycle theory. And my PhD uh, uh, thesis was on deflation. And then it was later published uh, as a book with the title In Defense of deflation. So I, I, I have also written a lot on, on deflation, but also on fractional reserve banking and uh, business cycles. So I had the chance to read In Defense of Deflation. I really enjoyed it. I think it was a very comprehensive look at a lot of these aspects around deflation. So why did you choose that topic to write about? Well, there are several reasons. One is, well, the, when I first looked on it, on deflation, it was in 2003 when I was a fellow at the Mises Institute, uh, like a, a spring fellow, I was at the Mises Institute. And uh, Guido Hülsmann was also looking into deflation and he, he was there, still there at the time. And he, he recommend or he said one of the topics that would could be interesting would be deflation. And I also thought it was very interesting. Mm, right before in 2002, Ben Bernanke had uh, had the speech, uh, deflation, make sure it does not happen here, where he basically said that the US has a printing press, uh, the Federal Reserve, so it can always prevent deflation for, ha- for happening because deflationing would be so bad. 
<clears throat> so it was at this time already uh, a topic, and and at this at that time not much had been written on deflation at all. <clears throat> I mean, still there's not uh, much written on on deflation. So one reason was uh, that uh, I encountered the topic at the Mises Institute. And then not so much had been written on it. And then, of course, that it's a very, very important topic because this deflation is always is always a scapegoat um, for justifying monetary inflation. Like a few years ago in the Eurozone, it was again that, oh, there's a danger that we will drift into a deflationary territory. Therefore, we have to lower interest rates and have negative interest rates and do quantitative easing here. <clears throat> so central bankers like to to invoke this the specter, the danger of deflation <clears throat> to justify monetary inflation with all its harmful consequences. And therefore, I thought uh, it would be interesting to in investigate it the topic and uh, later then I thought it's it's important to show that there are many errors about deflation that it's actually not just uh, the threat of deflation or the danger of deflation does not justify this monetary uh, infl inflation. Excellent. And I can see that your work really builds on some of the prior work of other Austrian economists, as you mentioned, Dr. Guido Holzman, his work, Deflation and Liberty and the Ethics of Money Production. And also in this book, I see uh, some influence from Dr. Joseph Lerner's Austrian taxonomy of deflation, because there are four causes of deflation. And I believe you list the four, the same four, but you expand on that a little bit. So can you tell us at a high level Somebody who's coming to this and if they haven't read any Austrian economics and they might have just seen on the news, they might have this question, oh, doesn't deflation drive the economy into recession? How, how do you answer that question? Yeah, well, first of all, as, as you said, one has to look at the precise cause of deflation. And, the, and here it's also important to point out, of course, that there are different definitions of deflation, like Price deflation is just falling prices, and what mainstream economists and the general public fear is price deflation. Or when you hear in the, on the news that deflation is coming, what they mean is price deflation is coming. Austrians um, also have used another definition, or maybe a more precise definition, which is a decrease in the money supply. A decrease in the money supply can cause uh, price deflation, of course. Um, but in my book, I actually deal with price deflation because price deflation is what uh, is commonly feared. So uh, the question is why? Yeah, well, when prices fall, we have also always take to into account that we are buyers and sellers. When we are buyers, we like prices to fall. When we are sellers, when we sell our labor services, for example, we don't very much like prices to fall. So um, if my buying prices, the things I buy, the food, the gasoline, if these prices fall faster, the buy my buying prices fall faster than the selling prices, that is, for example, my wage, um, then uh, deflation is fantastic for me. If it's the other way around, if my selling price, my wage is, uh, uh, or if I sell products is falling faster <clears throat> than my buying <clears throat> prices, the cost, for example, the cost to, pro to produce the product, then it would be bad. So falling prices per se are not bad for, for someone. It always depends which prices are falling faster, the buying or the selling prices. <clears throat> so uh, there's... A priori, there's no no reason to say that uh, falling prices would be bad for an economy. Right. And I also like the point that you make in the book, which is that much of government today is funded by inflationary fiat. Uh, and I think you explain some of the mechanism for this as well, because you, you explain in the book that because of this inflation, there's a constant demand for government bonds. Uh, can you uh, tell us why is it that inflation helps the government expand its size? Yeah, government uh, has uh, basically two uh, ways to finance its expenditures. One is taxes. 
taxes are not very people don't like taxes and they, <laughs> and they see they see a clear um, connection between um, increasing in government expenditures and taxes uh, let's like say let's say the government says oh let's increase uh, pensions public pensions by five percent and yeah, to find this we just increase income tax also uh, on average five percent so then people will <laughs> many people that are actually uh, wage earners will probably not like it very much but if the government just increases public pensions and then gets more support by by uh, pensioners and then finances by issuing bonds and then these bonds are then monetized by that is the money supply is increased to buy these bonds and then prices increase a little bit then people will probably not make the connection between oh the, now i have uh, paid 2 dollars more at the at the gas station and this is because they just raised pensions they will not make this connection and therefore the resistance against uh, financing government expenditures by uh, the printing press is not so high as if it is financed by taxes because people don't understand the monetary mechanism they, they don't see that if uh, when price that um, government expenditure and expenditures go up and prices rise and they don't blame the government for the the increase in the government expenditures on the rising prices and it's even more i mean if there's economic growth prices would actually would actually fall so now if the money if the government is increasing uh spending and uh, uh, issues government debts this can this can count compensate for the fall in cri fall in prices that would have occurred due to increases in productivity like like the internet new technology or the increase in the division of labor of china or india starting to produce for for us so prices thanks to the increase in government spending and the new debt and the monetization of the debt prices don't fall but stay the same or increase a little bit so and then people at the gas station will not say oh today i i I pay the same for my gas like last year, but if the government would not have increased pensions and in, had increased government spending, now I could pay ten percent less. So it's hard to see the costs. The costs of government spending are, are much clearer when there are taxes and there's increase in taxes, and the cost of the government spending, if it's financed through the printing press, is hidden. Uh, and how does it work? Well, the government just prints the, gov the government bonds and then the banking system buys the bonds and then sells it to the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve buys these bonds with new money and this new money then goes to the economy and fractional reserve banks can expand the money supply on top of it and then prices will be higher than they otherwise would have been. Uh, but people just don't make the connection between the government expenditures, the deficit, the issue of government debts. And uh, the increase in prices or the prices that, that are higher than they otherwise would have been, you know, because they don't know how the prices would have been, they uh, cannot make this connection, actually. Right. And you mentioned the price inflation and people can't necessarily make that connection. Do you also see a distinction between, say, CPI and asset inflation? So that, you know, the CPI might well be low, uh, measured in a certain way because it's a certain basket of goods, but then other assets may actually get inflated as well. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, uh, in the last few years, the inflation has flown mostly to asset price markets, to housing markets uh, in Europe, for example. Yes, also, and of course, the stock markets. So uh, the the price inflation inflation occurs there, but but the government, of course, they define. <laughs> their own basket the, the consumer price index and change the composition and yeah well these are just just numbers the important thing is that the money supply increases <clears throat> and that prices will be higher than they otherwise would have been uh when we speak about the inflation as well so as in uh creation of new money 
what I have seen, just from what I have read, it looks like in the more naive countries, let's say, just like the Zimbabwe's and the Venezuela's of the world, that they just straight up print the money. But in other countries of the world, it's more like the government and the central bank create the environment, the fractional reserve banking environment, in which the commercial banks do most of the actual money creation. Is that a good distinction to draw in your view, or how are you thinking on that point? Yeah, you have to take into account that a government like the United States has much credibility, and it creates also, let's say, a narrative of a central bank that is uh, independent um, and run by technocrats, vice technocrats, the best economists of the world, supposedly. Uh, they are wise, so there's uh, confidence in it. While in Zimbabwe or Venezuela, that actually goes uh, well. The government says the government tells the gov- uh, gov- uh, governor of the central bank, "Print me so much money, and uh, I I need money, so pr- just print money and give it to me." So the impression is that the central bank is totally dependent on on the government. And the the deficit is completely completely financed by the printing press, and then the uh, the confidence um, in the currency evaporates, and there's inflationary expectations. In the U.S. or in Europe, um, it's in essence it's not so different, but it's uh, yeah they have. Um, created this narrative that uh, it's the entities the entities the federal reserve and the government or the ecb and the governments are more independent um, and don't follow direct orders um, and as you said the mechanism is also more indirect than just giving the central bank of venezuela giving the gov- government um, the money as you said here there's a deficit in the us and then the U.S. prints for the deficits papers and writes on these papers treasury bonds. And then the commercial banks with uh, newly created money, they buy these treasury bonds because they know that the Federal Reserve accepts these treasury bonds <clears throat> in open market operations, buys buys it, uh, buys uh, them, and then the Federal Reserve buys them and monetizes them. That is, the Federal Reserve then later um, buys these government bonds. So it's not like in Venezuela where the central bank buys directly from the government the, the treasury bonds, the government bonds. But uh, in the US or in, in Europe, first the commercial banks buy these bonds and then give, give it to the Federal Reserve because the Federal, they know that, or the European Central Bank because they know that um, these are the preferred collateral or instruments for open market operations. And they know, of course, that at the end, the central banks will always support the governments. Last but not least, because there are so many government bonds in the banking system that if if these central banks would not buy or accept these bonds in open market operations, then the banking system would collapse and then the Federal Reserve and the ECB would have huge losses and the whole banking system would collapse. Um, I mean, they are so intricately connected uh, and, of course, they all all know it. So the the process is uh, more complex than in Venezuela uh, or Zimbabwe, but in the end effect, it's it's the same. I also have seen from different talks, and I think I've seen from Dr. Guido Holzman's talk, he's mentioned this idea that under a hard money standard, so let's say we were living under gold, that there would be much less role for debt. And it would be the debt that we would see would be more like commercial terms or trade credit, right? Things like, oh, I'll give you these goods and you only have to pay me in 30 days or 60 days, as opposed to what we see today where it's a very common practice to see lending for the sake of even starting a business. What's your view on the role of debt under a hard money standard? Yeah, of course. Uh, Today, um, we uh, we live in an inflationary age and everyone knows it that prices 
uh, will increase, um, will tend to increase in the future, in the long run. Um, housing prices or all all prices, wages. So, and and in this environment, of course, it makes sense to indebt yourself because if I know that housing prices will increase, will keep increasing in the next 20, 30 30 years, then it does not make much sense to wait and to save money and then later buy the house. But I will rather go into debt and buy the house now or the apartment now. And uh, then as there's this um, inflation, price inflation, my wage will also keep rising during the next decades so it will be become even easier to pay back the debt so in this scenario of course if we live in an inflationary world then it makes total sense and it's rational to indebt yourself if we uh, on the other hand and it does not make sense to save in cash and wait and only once we have the money uh, saved in cash to buy the house because uh, price inflation will devalue these savings, and it's the contrary, of course, if we would live in a in a world of a sound monetary standard where there's a tendency of prices to fall in the long run. Uh, if uh, there's a tendency of prices to fall in the long run, then the real debt burden <clears throat> keeps increasing uh, <clears throat> in time. So. Um, I will rather try to uh, limit my debts to have them as low as possible. And if I just save in cash, then the the real value of this cash will keep increasing. So it's a totally different scenario and a totally mindset that people will develop in in a sound monetary standard. standard. People will indebt themselves much less and save save more more in cash. In cash, and of course. Um, we live in this inflationary scenario. <clears throat> I mean, you can see it from 1971 when the last uh, connections to uh, the gold standard when the Bretton Woods system was were cut. Then price deflation and indebtedness increased. And of course, this allowed the government to indebt themselves a lot more because now they can create the um, the necessary money to pay their debts without any limits. They are not connected to gold uh, anymore. So they, they have free leeway to uh, to inflate as much as they want. And, to, and, and as markets know this, market participants know that, they allow governments to indebt themselves much more and at much lower interest, interest rates than... Um, than before, and this has allowed this has allowed governments to grow uh, extra, extraordinary since uh, since 1971. Especially the welfare states increased um, to to large ex- to large extents because they were financed with debts, and this debt financing would not have been possible um, with the gold standard. Uh, and, and this this uh, welfare state financing would not have been possible either by increases in taxes because people would have rebelled um, for the reasons I explained before. So there's a clear connection between the end of the a sound mon- or well, let, let's say a more a sounder monetary standard than we have now. That was the Bretton Woods system where there are at least still some links uh, to gold um, <clears throat> and. Uh, the inflation rate after 1971 and the rate that the government grow, have, have, has grown and the expansion of the welfare state. So it's clearly connected. With that idea of living under a, a hard money standard, when we're also saying that there wouldn't be so much debt, is another way to reflect that just to think that the interest rate that you pay would just be much, much higher than what people pay today? Or is that an imprecise way of thinking of it? Yeah, what's what's for sure is that now interest rates are manipulated um, <clears throat> by central banks artificially downwards. So, um, I mean, negative interest rates is not something that would occur on a on a free market or a sound monetary standard. So now uh, interest rates are artificially low, 
and in a sound monitor star standard they would be more uh, higher yeah that's for sure yeah and i'm curious as well with that because well depending on which theory of interest you uh subscribe to as i understand mises has the ptpt the pure time preference theory of interest i'm not sure exactly where you sit on that particular question but it might also be true to say that just generally speaking if society has a very low time preference right they're very patient then they might be more willing to accept a lower rate of interest uh, but that would be distinct or contrast with today where we have this artificially low interest rate it's almost like the central bank and the existence of the money the government money uh, intervention is to make it look like you know we have low time preference when really we don't necessarily because of all the inflation what's your view on that yeah most certainly uh, you are correct <clears throat> the people uh, yeah i mean this is exactly what happens in the business cycle no there's a deception that uh, time preference is lower hmm, uh, than it actually is so there will be more investments entrepreneurs are deceived they think there are more real savings available than there really is uh, but people don't uh, actually have not lowered the time preference uh, they don't save so much uh, they have a much higher time time preference and of course also um, this monetary system that is inflationary and uh, incentivizes you into go into depth um, increases time preference People don't have to wait uh, anymore. They just in-depth the, themselves and everything becomes much faster because you have to service your debt because you're very highly indebted. While this would be much different in, in a sound monetary standard where you're not so much indebted and you're more, more independent. Yeah. And uh, I think another question that I think a listener might be thinking at this point is if they are an entrepreneur and they have been accustomed to this current fiat inflationary world where it's a it's a common practice to go and get a business loan before you start a business or there is a lot of credit flush around the world and there's vc you know venture capital money uh flowing around the world they might be thinking well hang on is that a problem now because now people won't be able to do their own businesses because they can't get credit or and i guess what is it more like we would be living in a different monetary order such that you would be more inclined to save up in cash and then start your business rather than everyone requiring a loan to start their business yeah exactly <clears throat> look when uh, when everyone gets easy credit then you need a, need, need this credit and of course uh, if everyone gets an easy credit, then prices will be higher. No? Prices will be uh, bidden up. Uh, if if a, a, anyone can bid uh, for resources or for capital goods uh, using this money created by banks out of thin air, then the prices of of this of these capital goods will increase. If we go to a sound monetary standard, then the prices of all these goods and capital goods will decrease and it will be much easier to to purchase them because you don't have this uh, competition of of this money that is created there and is <coughs> trying to purchase the, uh, these goods. So, um, yes, you would probably... Uh, finance much more with equity your investments in a sound monetary standard and less uh, with debt and there would be less malinvestments because at the end the investments that can be done are limited by by the real savings available and creating credit out of thin air does not increase the real amount of savings so if we would have a sound monetary standard, the investments would be limited to the real savings available. And these would be probably uh, channeled th uh, through uh, equity, much more through equity investments than through, through loans. And one other question on that, because right now when businesses do longer term contracts, they typically build in some kind of CPI 
term to say, okay, we'll build in 2% or 3% inflation in the cost of whatever I'm buying or selling. If we were to flip that, and let's say we were living in a hard money standard or a sound money standard, and we were living in a deflationary world, do you believe businesses would try to build in some kind of deflationary clause to say, oh, okay, actually, because we're anticipating that the price will fall 2% every year or something like that, would they try to you know, did they, or do you know if they did build in that kind of thing uh, when people were living under a gold standard? Uh, no, no, they did not, um, and I think that they probably would not. Why? I can tell you why. Because um, if they foresee that prices will fall, the reason that they foresee this a long tra- long term trend in falling prices is because of productivity increases. So if there's an increase in productivity by capital accumulation or innovations <clears throat> that allows more goods to be produced or better goods to be produced, that means the prices will fall in the long term. Um, but that does not necessarily mean that the wages have to fall, nominal, nominal wages have to fall, because um, if there's this capital accumulation and innovation, that means that the productivity actually of uh, of workers uh, will also increase so then the increase in real wages would be would be justified uh, by uh, by the increase in productivity so there would be no probably no need to actually have nominal wages to fall while of course you uh, it might be necessary in some cases um, but uh, but in others, if if the fall in prices is actually caused by because workers have been more productive, um, then at least part <clears throat> part of it will be justified, and it will be just like a natural dividend uh, to to society that prices, uh, of course, consumer good prices continuously fall. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about because most of us are obviously most of us have grown up in this inflationary world. We're used to people having to negotiate with their employer to get increases every year just to keep pace but in this world in the in the you know sound money world it might be more like your real purchasing power is actually increasing every year even if your nominal wage stays the same exactly yeah so let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, causes of deflation because I think uh, as you do in your book and also as uh, Dr. Salerno spells out in uh, his article An Austrian Taxonomy of Deflation there's sort of like four different types or causes and it's sort of like two of them are good and two of them are you know might be seen as bad let's say uh, and I think the first one was growth deflation that we, we were sort of speaking to that just now can you uh, just tell us a little bit about those different causes of deflation yeah, the, first of all, there's growth deflation. Uh, again, I talk here about price deflation, why prices fall. One reason why prices fall is that productivity increases, that more goods and services are, are produced or better goods and services. And um, <clears throat> then there's a tendency of uh, prices, consumer good prices uh, to fall. You know? And this, this growth deflation can be caused by innovations, technology, uh, internet information technology it can be caused by increase in the division of labor um, the international division of labor has increased a lot in the last 30 40 years uh, because uh, like 40 years ago we did not have any products uh, produced in china and probably now you, your computer my laptop <coughs> they are all produced in china so the um, the international division of labor has increased a lot and of course, capital capital accumulation is another cause um, for, uh, for for productivity increases and uh, pri- the, that prices fall for price deflation. Again, this is uh, this should be the natural result of a market economy. A market economy has a sound monetary system, <clears throat> a sound monetary standard, and their prices in the long run. Um, tend to fall. It's naturally, naturally, it's good. It's of course, it's good uh, because prices fall because p- there's more wealth, there's more goods produced. So it's very positive. 
And then uh, cash building deflation. Now, this is more around what are the level of cash balances that we are all holding, what is the uncertainty that we all face, and if we are increasing our cash balance what what does that uh what does what does that mean a cash building deflation yeah it means that people think that they have do not have enough enough liquidity or enough cash so they they demand more more money to hold so how how can how can i increase my cash balance first of all i can buy less than i did last month right for my salary, I, for my wage, I, I buy less, or I can sell more. Um, and if people sell more and buy less, then prices uh, tend to fall. And when prices tend to fall, actually, they achieve. Let's say everyone uh, wants to have a higher cash balance, and everyone is uh, buying less and selling more. Then the result will be that prices fall. And that they actually achieve what they want, because if they, they hold the same nominal amount of money but prices fall, that means that the real cash balances—that is, what they can buy with the nominal uh, amount of cash that they hold—increases. So it's also beneficial because it uh, satisfies <clears throat> the needs and the wants. Of uh, of people that want to have a higher hold a higher real cash balance, um, which they sometimes want when uncertainty increases. Yeah, and I like in the book as well. You spell out here. You actually disaggregate some of these different components, and you spell out even inside this concept of cash building deflation. You can even disaggregate it further and talk about okay, there's things like wealth storage demand for money and speculative demand for money. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about those concepts, wealth storage demand and speculative demand for money? Yeah, the wealth storage uh, <clears throat> demand for money is um, that people want to store, well, as, as, as the word says, want to store their wealth uh, in money <clears throat> because it's very liquid and you can transport it over time. Um, the speculative uh, demand for money is that you demand the money actually because you think that the price of money will increase, the purchasing power of money will increase, and thereby you actually speed up uh, what you think that will happen uh, because the demand of money then uh, increases the Increase, uh, increases the tendency of prices to fall and the purchasing power of money to increase. Fantastic. Uh, and now let's talk about some of the quote-unquote bad deflation types, if you will. So we've spoken about growth deflation and cash-building deflation. And I think uh, for listeners, you, if you also read uh, Dr. Guido Holzman's uh, essay, Deflation and Liberty, he sort of spells out why those might first seem really bad, but actually... It's more like, and it's more like the economy is kind of self-correcting itself out. Uh, but Philip, could you tell us a little bit about bank credit deflation? What is that? Yeah, bank credit deflation happens uh, after an artificial boom, when <clears throat> when banks, uh, fractional reserve banks, have expanded uh, credit, have have created more money and loaned it out at artific uh, at artificial low interest rates then investment projects appear to be profitable that did not appear or that are not profitable at higher interest rates. So there's an artificial boom. People start this new project, even though it's not justified <clears throat> by the real savings around because uh, it's just, the projects are just financed by this by these money created out of thin air by this bank credit, so we have an artificial boom, more projects are started than there are real savings around. And sooner or later, this will be, become obvious that not all projects can be um, successive, successfully completed and there will be a bust. And then in the bust, what happens in the bust? Well, these... Um, investment projects, uh, some must be liquidated, which means that some companies will go bankrupt. And this means that there will be losses for the banks 
that financed these projects. And when the banks have losses, they, um, yeah, well, when they when they have losses, what uh, they will try to increase, or they will become more prudent. They will try to increase their reserves and their equity ratio. How do they do that? By restricting credit, mm-hmm. by not renewing old credit, old credit uh, lines, <clears throat> or when cre- when when loans are paid back, they don't give new loans. At the same time, um, of course, bank clients, uh, depositors, when there's a bust, they they look at the bank and see, oh, the bank has has losses. Shall I not rather get my money from the bank or stop refinancing refinancing the bank? So, for all these reasons, uh, in a bust, in a re- recession, the banks uh, uh, are in a difficult situation, and they restrict credit. That is. They don't give out more credits. So, and this is the bank credit contraction. In a fractional reserve banking system, the banks can create new loans, and when these new loans are paid back, or when they when they create these new loans, they create new money, and the money supply increases. And then, when they when these loans are be paid back, and the the banks don't give immediately a new loan, then the money supply shrinks. And this happens typically in a recession. Mm-hmm. That uh, the banks, um, when loans are paid back or are not paid back because uh, companies go bankrupt, then they don't give out new loans immediately uh, because they want to increase their reserve ratio and they want to increase their equity ratio. They, be- they become more cautious. So th- and this happened, of course, after the Great Re- Recession, that um, banks did not give out new loans. Huh? When old new loans were paid back, they did not give out new loans, which means that the money supply then shrinks. Hmm? But the bank credit deflation makes the money supply to shrink. And when the money supply then shrinks, then we have uh, then we have price deflation as a consequence, and then we can actually have uh, kind of a deflationary spiral because when then prices fall, then uh, indebted companies will get pro- problems to pay back their their debts that are nominally fixed, and they will go bankrupt. The bankrupt that will be will mean more losses for banks. More losses for banks means that they have to restrict credit even more. That means that the money supply falls even more. Prices fall even more. There will be more problems for indebted players and more bankruptcies so um, this is a famous deflationary spiral Um, I I think uh, well I see a positive this kind of deflation because it speeds up uh, of course the recovery it makes uh, overly indebted companies fall faster go bankrupt faster than they otherwise would it has a purging effect it has a cleansing effect It makes people become more cautious to save more. More savings are also necessary for um, for new sustainable uh, projects and uh, for for a recovery. Um, and yeah, it could also take down very indebted players uh, with it uh, that go bankrupt. It would be more many uh, very positive. You know that the mo- highest indebted player in our economy is, is, is the government itself. So it would have get into the problems as well. So all these are positive uh, effects, and we have also taken into account what is the alternative. The alternative is to reinflate, reinflate the same thing and prop up these malinvestments, and then the lingering and the the um, uh, the malinvested resources would continue. Uh, I mean, there's a problem in in a. When the bus comes, is that the resources are located where they should not be. They should be relocated as fast as fast as possible, and the bank credit deflation speeds up actually this pro- uh, this process of reallocating the the resources. Uh, after the financial crisis, unfortunately, was done uh, the wrong thing. It was reinflated, and this. Uh, um, the money supply was re- reinflated, <clears throat> and the recession uh, lasted much longer than it sh- 
should have lasted. Right. And this is what typically people are scared about if you see the news and they say, oh, no, deflation is bad. This is, the, this is normally what they're thinking of. But as you're saying, this is actually part of the corrective process. And I think it's also an important point to note that it's not that the productive assets out there are being destroyed. They still exist, right? Like the tractors and the computers and whatever, they still exist. It's that they just need to be repurposed to where you know the market consumers want them to be repurposed to correct exactly uh, one might have the pre uh, conceived idea that bankruptcies are something bad but bankruptcies are not something bad in itself they're actually very very important in a free market because a bankruptcy uh, basically means that um, the scarce resources of society have been employed in a bad way. They have employed, uh, you know, uh, to produce products that people do not want. They want consumers want other products more, more urgently. Uh, and the losses are a sign that this means stop this, stop doing this, close this business, reallocate uh, the resources to produce something that are that is more urgently needed. So, and that, this is then what happens in mass um, in in a recession, because before there has been this malinvestment caused by this uh, bank credit inflation, the artificially low I uh, interest rates, and then the bankruptcies speed up uh, the reallocation of resources. the The alternative is to maintain these. Uh, these malinvestments, these businesses there, and continue to waste these resources. Um, this this would be this is horrible from the point of view of of consumers. From point of view of consumers, it, it is important that the bankruptcy actually occurs. The bankruptcy takes the resources out of the hand of, let's say, the bad entrepreneur and gives it to people who entrepreneurs who supposedly or have the chance to do some uh, something better with these resources and as you said these resources through the bankruptcy these resources do not disappear because <laughs> they are still there they just change the owner now, bankruptcy is just the change of the ownership of the resources they change they are in the hand of a of a failed, of a bad entrepreneur, and then they, they go into the hand of another entrepreneur that has a chance to recombine these resources in another way, in a more productive, in an innovative way to produce things that com consumers want more urgently. Excellent. Um, and let's talk about that last one, fiat deflation. So what is fiat deflation? Yeah, fiat deflation is when the government causes price deflation. Yeah, and uh, this is what I would say is the uh, is it's bad because it's caused caused by the government. It's caused by by coercion. No, <clears throat> the others are voluntary. They are caused by voluntary actions. Growth deflation is caused by voluntary actions. Uh, cash building is voluntary uh, actions. Uh, bank credit deflation is actually, let's say, it's and the deflation is barrel. It's it's a free market reaction against. Um, Against an intervention into the, into the free market, no, into against against an aggression. But now fiat deflation, as as the name indicates, it's by government fiat. It's done by the government. This can be uh, there, there are several several types how the government can cause prices to fall. The, the most simple one is just that it decreases prices to to fall. It just says that all prices have to be lower 10%. No? Um, <clears throat> that would be, um, or, yeah, or let's say they, they put in maximum prices that are lower than the free market prices no? for, for everything. No? And the other type is like coercive monetary deflation that the government actually confiscates and destroys money. Why would it do that? Well, Obviously, it does not occur so often, but sometimes it it, it does uh, because there has been a strong inf inflation in the first place, and then they want to destroy this uh, inflation. Um, 
to to get the, the money out of the way. Um, some and sometimes it's all, it has also been done when uh, in the past there had been like a connection to gold, for example, and the redemption rate, and then the re redemption rate had been suspended, like in the U.S. Civil War, and then they had inflated the money supply. And then they wanted to go back to the same redemption rate as before. And they could only do it if they destroyed at least part of this additional money that had been created to finance the civil war. And they did it by issuing bonds and then yeah, destroying this money. I see. So in that way, it's like a confiscatory tax almost, but just through another means. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, one other topic that I think is keen, I'd be keen to touch on is this concept of oh no, there's a you know the economy is in a quote unquote liquidity trap. How, how do Austrians answer that point? Yeah, well, uh, the liquidity trap trap uh, uh, argument says well, <clears throat> if there's a price deflation. This means that that makes um, the interest rate the uh, to fall because the deflationary expectations are priced into the interest rate, and there's the zero bound that interest rates cannot be. Uh, at least this was the argument before: the interest rate cannot be lower below zero. That means that when we are in the liquidity trap, then the um, central bank loses its power to stimulate the economy by increasing. Uh, the money supply and uh, decreasing interest rates. But the Austrian answer to this is that we don't want this. We don't want the government actually to stimulate artificially the um, the economy through monetary policy. So, um, and therefore, this this is not an argument against against deflation because uh, uh, we don't want the government to 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 manu manipulate the money supply in the first place. Right, right. Um, and I'm also keen to just discuss if you have any examples that you can share in terms of what does a growth deflation look like? And I think in the book, you have the example of the US from 1865 to 1896. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what what that looked like and you know how that might differ to what we are all used to you know today in 2020 yes um actually in most places in the 19th century there were long, long periods of price deflation the american deflation from 1865 to 96 was one of the one of the longest um prices i think they fell more than 30 percent uh, continuously and and of course it was not a it was not a problem for the economy it was not a problem for economic growth actually it's the other way around prices fell because of extraordinary economic growth of extra extraordinary increases in productivity um, so prices fell continuously over more than three de uh, decades and uh, people ga got accustomed to it there was uh, no problem. In, in fact, there was tremendous economic growth. Uh, of course, this is very different to what we are accustomed to right now. Yeah. And of course, there were there were of course also um, yeah there were of, there was also kind of uh, conflicts in this period because, as I said before, price deflation is not a problem for the economy as a whole because when prices fall as i said buying prices fall and selling prices fall so it depends if my buying prices fall faster than the selling prices if i'm a winner or a loser so if my buying prices fall faster than the selling prices i'm a winner but there will be also people who uh, in the if if I am a winner, then there is also a loser because his se selling prices fall faster than <coughs> his buying prices. So there, it, this means that deflation, price deflation, always mm, implies a redistribution. It means it does not mean that the economy as a whole is getting uh, poorer or it's a pr problem for all, but for some it may be a problem. And these are. Um, and especially one group that um, 
losers in the price deflation are of course the debtors. Uh, the debtors lose and the creditors win. It's not a problem for the economy as a whole because exactly what the debtors lose, the creditors will win. But of course, the, the creditors uh, will protest. They they will say this is horrible. Uh, we have to do something against price deflation because, and they will invent theories about uh, deflationary spirals and liquidity traps. And they the the point of course is that these um, debtors historically has been very well organized. Um, because big business banks, they are they have been the big debtors, and of course the government is the biggest debtor of all, of all, and they have the common interest of uh, getting out of a price deflationary scenario and get into price inflation, and the creditors or the people who who would win in a price deflation, which are the creditors, and all people who hold money. Uh, all people who hold money uh, they gain through the increase in purchasing power they are not so well organized they don't have a lobby group th that uh, defends them so this explains why um, we have this in in the media or in, in general we have this fear of deflation and that we live uh, in a world of uh, price inflation because the people who win in a price deflation <clears throat> are much better organized and much closer to power, to government power, than those people who uh, win in a price deflation. Actually, actually, power itself, the government itself, wins in a price inflation uh, and loses in a price deflation because it's, it's a d biggest debtor. And that you can see also in the 30, 30 years uh, after the Civil War, that there were, that there were conflicts, um, that people who were highly indebted said this would was horrible for them. Of course, it was. Uh, they, they would have been better off if they, there would have been price inflation because they were debtors. But they were portray, portraying it as, as if as if if would it would be a problem for the U.S. economy as a whole, and it was not. It was a, a time of tremendous economic growth, and it may be that the relative position, wealth position of the debtors decrease, but over, overall wealth uh, increased tremendously in, in, in these years. Fantastic. I really like that insight about uh, the political strength, if you will, of the campaigners on the inflation side versus the deflation side. And I think maybe just to summarize for if you were to talk to the typical man on the street who hasn't necessarily studied Austrian economics, he is probably confusing growth deflation with bank credit deflation, right? So when they hear on the news, they think, oh, deflation is bad. They're probably thinking of bank credit deflation, whereas those who are more in favor of a sound money are in favoring that hard money, sound money idea because they want the benefits that will come from growth deflation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, most certainly, most certainly. The point is that central banks, <clears throat> they don't make this, this, this distinction at all, or central bankers. They, for example, like a few years ago in the Eurozone, when uh, price deflation was coming close close to zero, it was not even negative. Uh, and it was the inflation of what they measure, that is CPI with their, in their terms. Um, they were saying, well, we're getting close to this territory, so we have to inflate. But they sh they did not even ask if this was caused by bank credit deflation or growth deflation. I mean, if if it would be caused by growth deflation, <clears throat> most reasonable pe reasonable people would have to agree. Well, this is fantastic. This is not a this is not a problem at all. So yes, one should decide between the two. Um, in uh, again, growth deflation is good for everyone. Um, Bank credit deflation is, uh, yeah, hurts. It hurts, but uh, it speeds up also the recovery process, right? Yeah, so it's a corrective. Yeah, I really like the way you've um, explained that. I think it was really uh, helpful for my listeners. Uh, 
Philip, did you have anywhere uh, in terms of um, if my listeners want to follow more of your work, where can they find you online or read any uh, other works by yourself? Well, uh, my website is philipbagus.com and my Twitter name is, yeah, I'm on Twitter also, Philip Philip Bagus, uh, at yeah, Philip Bagus, my Twitter name, yeah. So if you want to follow me, you can also also do that. And on the Mises side, of course, I have Mises website. I also have uh, there are all the stuff that I publish with Mises there. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you very much, Stefan. I also enjoyed it very much. He's brilliant, isn't he? Really great explanations on deflation. And I think it's just such a commonly misunderstood topic, especially amongst the no-coiner types out there. So make sure you share this episode and think of it when you're trying to explain it to those kinds of people. Also, just a quick note with Ministry of Nodes, me and my co-founder Katan, we are available as well. If, if you're a listener and you are more interested on the economics aspect of it, but maybe you're struggling on the technical aspect of Bitcoin and you want some tips and guidance on how to secure your hardware wallet and private keys and how to set up your Bitcoin node, we are available as well. You can also book us in for just a private consultation and we can just help you out over a zoom call and basically just pay us what you think we're worth right so if you want to get in touch you can find us at ministryofnodes.com.au or just give us an email ministryofnodes at gmail.com as usual the show notes and the transcript for this episode will be at stefanlevera.com slash 153 thanks for listening and i'll see you in the citadels